1 John chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7, down through uh, verse 17. Here once again the very word of God. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have, have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning, and I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father, and I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And now from Proverbs chapter 8, verses 32 through 36. Now therefore listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we give thanks that as you've told us in your word, the world is passing away, the lusts of it, and there is a promised new world coming, which is already dawning before us, and we give thanks. Nevertheless, Lord, we as your people battle each and every day with the passions of our own souls, the, the carnal flesh that so easily is beset by temptations that are brought about in us because of our sinfulness and from outside of us by the work of Satan and his minions. So, Father, help us to overcome the world as you teach us in John's epistle. And we pray this day that we would come to grips with these three great categories of sin that we so easily are enticed by. Father, help us to be victorious over them. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our dear Savior. Amen. Brethren, I was asked several, maybe even more than a year ago now, about our confession in, in the worship service, how we ought to, to come to that silent confession, how we ought to pray. And of course, it's a short uh, period of confession of personal sin. 
It's not a long period of time, and so there's only a short period of time to, to deal with our sin. And it was my suggestion at that request to come uh, to this very passage in God, John's first epistle, chapter 2, where we have a summary of all of the sins that easily beset us. And it, when we go to confession to the Lord in silent confession in our worship, this is the thing I, I would encourage us to consider confessing. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Those three categories summarize all the sins that beset us. And so we're going to deal with that a little bit today. Each day without fail, a great war takes place in the life of the believer. It is not a war like those depicted in documentaries or in the movies. It is a war waged in the soul of the believer. And it is not against flesh and blood, but rather... It is as the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the problem is that we so so much um, uh, align ourselves with those wicked things. And that's the the concern of John in chapter 2 of his first epistle. The war that we are engaged in is a subtle war to the pulling down of strongholds and and Satan's kingdom, uh, Paul writes. And we're endeavoring at every point to silence... He is endeavoring at every point to silence us and devour those of of the kingdom of God. He's trying to pull down the strongholds of God and we, as God's people... have been uh, brought into the kingdom to pull down his strongholds by and through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. We must not be naive. Satan and his minions want our demise, and he is working diligently with his minions to bring that about. 1 Peter 5a, be sober, Peter says to the church. Be vigilant, he says to the church. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In this warfare, the great enemy of God and God's kingdom, that is Satan, uses two primary strategies to quench the effectiveness of God's kingdom. Of the two, one's more effective than the other. The lesser of the two strategies is that of persecution. We see this being employed by Satan primarily in foreign lands, but it is likely to increase in our own land in the coming days. And yes, I did say that the lesser of the two, uh, two great tools that Satan uses is that of persecution. In the great apocalypse penned by the Apostle John, this persecution is vividly described as a woman in labor about to give birth and the great dragon waits before her to consume the child she will bear. Her male child was none other than Jesus, who Satan persecuted unto death on the cross. But it was Jesus who gained the victory in his resurrection. Satan then turns his attention on the other children of that woman in Revelation chapter 12 to persecute them. And it is there that we read, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, 
who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's a description of us, brethren. We are the other offspring of that woman. And it says here that he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Yes, this strategy of Satan is effective to a point, but ultimately, the blood of the martyrs, history has shown, promotes the very life of the church. Just as our salvation is in the blood of our Savior, the blood of the martyrs enlivens the church even today. Though we don't like to think about martyrdom, the martyrs of the church are God's great arrows in his quiver. They have taken the gospel to the nth degree, to the point they've given their lives for it. And our Father in heaven takes note of that. Now, Satan's more effective strategy in bringing about our weakness is that of seduction. This is his more potent weapon against God's people. Making things seem attractive and seeking to draw the Christian away by seduction and trickery, this is his preferred weapon and that of his minions as well. No greater example is there than that of Satan's alluring Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He enticed her with the fruit of the tree and questioned the decree of God, enticing Eve with deception to disobey her creator. The scriptures record Eve's reaction. The fruit of the tree was, quote, pleasant to the eyes, end quote, and good for food. Clearly, Eve was deceived, but her her seduction was completed because she failed to obey the word of God. Do not eat of that tree. We often come back to this account in Scripture because it is so fundamental and elemental to our understanding of the great studies of history, the study of theology, who God is, his holiness compared to that of man's sinfulness. Epistemology, how we know what we know. We know things because God has decreed them to be known. Anthropology, who is man in light of this God who has created him? And how are we to act? Soteriology, the study of salvation since the fall of man and the great promise of salvation in Genesis 3.15. And then lastly, eschatology. Where are we headed in light of all this? And our passage today touches on every one of these things, every one of these five studies in history. But more importantly for our study today, our passage this morning tells us not to love the world no matter how attractive it is, which was the deception that Eve submitted to. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Brethren, this is plain, simple language. Do not love the world or the things in the world. God does not give us complexity. He graciously says it like he wants things to be for us. Do not love the world or the things in the world. This admonition is vital to every age of man and every age of history. And I did mean to say that. Every age of man, which is not historical, but every age in history as well. Let me explain. 
Notice that this is immediately preceded in verses 12 through 14 by dual descriptions of children, fathers, and young men. This admonition not to love the world is for children, you children who are here. It is for you fathers who are here and for you young men who are here. And it's mentioned twice for each category in those verses preceding this. And then John comes very quickly to this admonition. Do not love the world or the things in the world. From the youngest to the oldest, all believers must heed this admonition. Thus, children, young men and women, old men and ladies, hear this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Not only is this admonition good for every age of person, it is equally good for every age of mankind. This is the case throughout all history. God in His Son, Jesus Christ, came to overcome the world, and He has given us the Holy Spirit that we might indeed do that. And so we are to embrace Him and His means to overcome the world and not love it, nor the things of it. Now, I have to be careful. This raises a question. What world is being spoken of here? The world here is not the created order. What God created, He created good. And He placed man in His creation to enjoy it, subdue it, and fill it. The world here is the world of unbelief and rebellion that John is describing. It is the world that is manifested in unbridled desires or passions and pride that he condemns. We must reject the notion that God is condemning his very own creation. It is Greek dualism that condemns the physical and elevates the spiritual to the exclusion of the creation. Brethren, God will have none of this. What he created, he created good. And he intends for mankind to use his creation for the glory of himself and for our good. And so we cannot embrace a Greek dualism that the creation itself is somehow evil. That is not the case. God created it good, and it's to be used for his glory. Jesus rose from the dead to reunite the spiritual with the physical. Let me say that again. He rose from the dead to reunite the spiritual with the physical. He rose from the dead to make anew the sinful flesh into a holy body that we too will inhabit at the final resurrection. He will make anew the heavens and the earth, purged from sin, which is the plague that John is telling us to have nothing to do with. Jesus Christ came to redeem the whole thing, not just man, but the creation itself, and to put all things right, to put it back to where it was prior to the fall. Paradise restored, brethren, That which was lost will be restored. And we must be careful here to rightly understand that God is not condemning his creation, but rather what it has become because of sin and man's fall. And John touches on the very kinds of attributes that are indicative of the sinful world we are to reject. And they are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. How are these three attributes manifested in us and in the world? Well, we need to look at the Scriptures to come to grips 
with that and find the answers. We must be careful here to rightly understand that each of these attributes, beginning with the lust of the flesh, it is likely that our minds immediately go to these things as John defies, defines them as attributes of the world that we are to not, that we are to reject. Well, let's begin with the lust of the flesh. When we think about this, I suspect the sexual lust and, uh, is often contemplated as the primary, uh, condemnation here. It is included in this, the lust of the flesh, the sexual lusts of man. But it is far greater than just this one kind of lust. The lust of the flesh contemplates anything having to do with the body and self-gratification. It is the lusting after luxuries of life, as one commentator has said. It is the sinful overindulgence of one's own desires. The sinful overindulgence of one's own desires. Brethren, God gives us desires that are to be used for his glory. The sexual desire is to be used for his glory. The desire for us to have good food is to be used for his glory. All the desires that we have are to be used for his glory. And yet man somehow has a unique ability to abuse those things with great, great care. I want to give us three examples to consider. The one is the sexual desire, the next being gluttony, and the other, the last, idleness. Man's wickedness perverts all good gifts of God, whatever they may be. Consider just these three examples. God gave the sexual desire to Adam and Eve to keep the dominion mandate by filling the earth. Now, what has man done with this desire? What God has designed to be practiced in fidelity by one man with one woman in holy matrimony is perverted by lust and is practiced in sinfulness with many partners of both sexes for mere gratification and not for the filling of the earth. On the contrary, men don't want to have the consequences of this. They would rather abort their children because children tend to interfere with one's lusts. And this is what man has done with this good gift of God. As for food, God created all the fruit-bearing trees of the garden and prohibited the use of one. Was man without God's bounty? On the contrary, he was the recipient of more than enough. Satan deceived Eve into thinking she didn't have enough, and she disobeyed God. Adam willfully disobeyed God in eating of the forbidden fruit. And it's interesting that this first temptation Satan used on Jesus was that of eating as well. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and was weakened physically, as we find in Matthew's Gospel chapter 4. Satan tempts him, tempts him to turn stones into bread. And Jesus' response Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus began thwarting the kingdom of Satan at the very temptation that brought about sin in the world. The lust of the flesh to not honor God in what we eat. That's where 
Jesus begins to dismantle Satan's kingdom. The third example also comes from the creation week. The last day of the week is the Sabbath day, the holy day of rest. Now mankind has abused the Sabbath day and the other six days of the week by his own lusts. Some with dishonoring the Sabbath day by working when he should rest. Other men dishonor the other six days of the week with idleness. God condemns both. Through our own lust, men pervert these good gifts from the hands of God. Our working on the day of rest, except for those exceptions God himself describes, is to say to God, we don't believe he will increase the yield of our labor without our help. That's what we're saying to God when we work on the Sabbath day. You're not going to keep your promise to us. You're not going to increase our labor without man's help. What an awful thought. What an awful thought. Nothing could be further from the truth. Deuteronomy 8.18 reads, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. God says, I am the one who increases wealth, and I will do it covenantally. You keep your covenant with me as I've told it, to you as I have taught it to you and to your forefathers and watch who gives the increase. That is God himself. Brethren, our lusts dishonor God when we believe we know better than he. And we often think we do to our own detriment. Similarly, we dishonor God when we overindulge in rest. Now, I'm one who loves to rest. If I ever have a temptation, it's probably this one. I enjoy sleeping. But I don't seem to get enough. I'm always, my appetite is always greater. I'm going to talk about the appetite of the eye in a moment. We dishonor God when we overindulge in rest. Consider that in two places in the book of Proverbs, God makes these same statements. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. You see, man, man's lusts and our passions fall off both sides of the road. Doug Wilson says there's ditches on both sides of the road. The straight and narrow is the road itself. We can abuse God's good gifts of Sabbath-keeping on one side of the road, or we can be a sluggard on the other side of the road. We can fall into two different ditches, and man has a great capacity to fall into ditches. Such is the man given to idleness. His slumber, his sleep, his folding of his hands bring him to poverty. Because God said, subdue the earth and fill it. That requires work, godly work. Then the apostle turns to the lust of the eye. Brethren, the the eye is the gateway to the mind. It is like the chief of our senses. It probably would be considered the chief of our senses because it, it has such a great impact in our lives. What passes through our eye becomes embedded in our minds. Therefore, it is very important that our eyes be guarded from that which can tempt us to sin. 
Consider Proverbs 27, verse 20. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. This verse warns of the eye of man never coming to satisfaction. It always has to be fed. This is no more apparent to us than with all the gadgets we possess to stimulate our senses, the sense of sight. Now again, God gave us our eyes to see and to enjoy wondrous things. Our eyes are to be stimulated with the handiwork of God. Both his creation and his word are made manifest to us through our eyes. But again, man's eyes are never satisfied and therefore must be put into subjection to God's will deliberately. Deliberately. In our day, the plague of pornography grips our society with unceasing consequences. This is but one lust that is fueled by our digital mediums. The addiction to fantasies and entertainment are ever increased through the ease of access to digital toys. Just consider the self-absorption that comes through our computers, tablets, and smartphones. So the eyes of men are never satisfied. How much time is taken up? And I confess, I'm guilty. Staring into a screen. Staring into a screen. This being true, it is all the more important that we use the eyes for the purposes that bring glory to God and not just satisfy the lusts of our own never-satisfied eyes. The last of the three sinful attributes that John describes is the pride of life. This is the desire for self-acclamation. We don't suffer from that, do we, as a society? Self-acclamation? Or do we? How often do we seek acclaim from others? Isn't this often the very purpose we use social media? Again, the eyes are never satisfied. Neither is the pride of man. We desire the world to see what we're doing for self-aggrandizement. When we draw attention to ourselves, we feed this lustful passion in our hearts. And we must be careful. On whom should we focus our attention and the attention of others? Is it our praise that we should desire? Or should we desire the praise of our Savior? This is why it is so important that we keep the commandments of God. In doing so, you hold in check your own passions and you elevate the person and work of Jesus Christ and your brethren. The Ten Commandments are not just suggestions. If we hold on to these things and do them as God describes them to be done, we not only show our love to the Father, but we show our love to one another. On whom should we focus our attention and the attention of others? It is our praise that we too often desire when we should desire the praise of our Savior. And again, this is why we need to embrace the commandments of God. Come back to our passage with me. Let's read it again. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. Praise God. That world that John just described is passing away. It's going the way of the buggy whip. I suppose you could still find a buggy whip somewhere, maybe in an antique store. But it's passing away. That world is passing away. And the lust of it. And, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Brethren, we, we, we are in this warfare and we look upon life. Bible says a man's days are counted three score and ten, seventy years. Some live a little longer, some a little less. Approximately seventy years for every man. That is a mere wisp of wind in eternity. Paul, James even says that. Life is but a vapor. It's here a moment and it vanishes. We look at it as an eternity, don't we? Children, you're, those of you who are under the age of 12 think 70 is like beyond understanding. I can remember those days in my own life. When I got to 18, I thought, 70? Oh, that's still a long way off. I'm 58. Well, I'm talking 12 years. You know, that's, it's getting closer all the time. Praise God. Praise God. I'll be in eternity soon. And for me, this world will have passed away. Praise the Lord. But in the meantime, in the meantime, the Scriptures teach us, hold on to what I've taught you. Hold on. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the Word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. Well, what is it that overcomes the wicked one? Time doesn't permit. I'll jump ahead in John's epistle. Our abiding in Christ by faith is the seedbed of overcoming the wicked one. How is it that we can follow in Christ's example, keeping the commandments of God? We can only do that through faith in Christ and the power of His resurrection. And so I want to turn our attention to chapter 5 of John's epistle. I'll read this to you. In closing, whoever believes that Jesus Christ is born of God and everyone who loves him who begot, who begot also loves him who is begotten of him, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Herein lies our strength. 
When you are tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, the Apostle Paul reminds us there is a way of escape. And that escape is only found in Jesus Christ, the one who overcame sin and death. Cry out to Him for relief. Trust in Him for forgiveness. Follow Him by faith, and you shall overcome the world. Let's pray.